If you begin your Bible reading last week and you're following the Bible outline that we make available for everyone, then after Friday you would have read the first 15 chapters in the book of Genesis. Of course, you would have read the first five Psalms and you read the first five chapters in the book of Matthew. Now, sometimes people ask me when they're wanting to get started reading the Bible, where is the best place, best place to start? And my reply to them usually is, you need to start in Genesis. You need to start in the beginning. The book of Genesis is perhaps the most important book in all the Bible. And there's a number of reasons for that. It's what you call a foundational book. Just like the most important part of a building, say this building here, it's not the roof. Obviously that's important. And the walls, the windows, all are important. But the most important part of this building is the foundation of it. Because depending upon the foundation, everything else rests, right? And it's going to rise or fall. And the Lord taught that in the Sermon on the Mount. The last thing he said in Matthew chapter 7, He that heareth my sayings and doeth them I liken to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And when the winds came and the rain came, the house stood, had a solid foundation. But I liken that man who heareth my sayings and doeth them not to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rain and the storms came, the house fell apart. Now you have a wise man and a foolish man. They both heard the word of God. But what makes the distinction? What makes the difference? One of them not only heard, but he also did. One heard and did not. That's the difference between a wise man and a fool. The foundation determines the size of a building. It determines the shape of a building. It determines the strength of the building. And the book of Genesis is a foundational book on which the other 65 books of the Bible rest upon. So from that point of view, it is the most important book in the Bible. The name or the word Genesis means original or origin, beginnings. It's oftentimes referred to as the seed plot of the Bible because every major doctrine of the Bible has its beginning in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis covers about the first 2,550 years of human history. Now, the Bible teaches us that this earth is about 6,000 years old. You can date it back to 4,004 B.C. up to the present day. So that's 6,000 years. So the book of Genesis alone has 50 chapters in it. The book of Genesis alone covers the first 2,550 years of man's existence upon the face of this earth. The first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis covers the first 1,500 years of man's existence. And the reason I mentioned the first 11 chapters of Genesis is because these first 11 chapters are the most attacked chapters in the Bible by those who are anti-Christian, who are against God and His Word. They like to attack the first 11 chapters. And the reason for this is because you have two major things in these first 11 chapters on which if these are not true, then the rest of the Bible has no credibility. And that is the work of God in creation and also the flood, Noah and the ark. Those are attacked relentlessly, have been for a long, long, long time. 
So I hope you begin to see how important the book of Genesis is. In the New Testament, for example, there are over 200 references in the New Testament to the book of Genesis. 165 direct references, and some of them mentioned twice, so over 200 times the book of Genesis is referred to in the New Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, okay, is referred to in the New Testament. And there are eight New Testament writers. All eight New Testament writers refer to the first 11 chapters of Genesis somewhere in their writings. Now that's pretty significant as far as I'm concerned. Now the Lord and Jesus Christ made a half a dozen references to events in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So that's just a little bit of background about this wonderful book this book that you ought to read and study is the foundation which everything else rests in the Word of God. If Genesis isn't true, then nothing else is true. But if Genesis is true, and those first 11 chapters of Genesis, I've already mentioned, and the significance of them is true, then you can certainly rest upon everything else in the Word of God as being correct, accurate, and true. So let's just take a look at the first verse of the Bible. If I were to ask you today, what, what verse in the Bible do you think has been the most read verse in the entire Bible? Well, no one really knows the answer to that, I don't suppose, but I do suppose it's Genesis 1-1. And the reason for that is when people start to read the Bible, they usually start in Genesis 1-1. Now, they may leave it in Genesis 1-2, but at least they read Genesis 1-1. And oftentimes, they exit in the book of Exodus, or they leave it in the book of Leviticus, you know, they make it so far, and then they just kind of get behind a little bit and get discouraged. And, but I want to encourage you not to let that happen. If you get behind, don't stop. Just because you're behind, don't stop. If you follow the Bible reading outline, you've got two days of the week where you don't have to read any of the Scriptures. Saturday and Sunday, you can use those to get ahead and use those to catch up. But don't stop. And the book of Genesis is so in interesting. To begin with, it's just extremely interesting, the book of Genesis. Those first 11 chapters as you move along. See, chapter 12 is where you have the call of Abram out of the land of the earth of the Chaldees. You have the formation of the nation of Israel beginning in chapter 12. But the first 11 chapters, the first chapters, of course, the chapter of creation. The second chapter, we're going to read where God makes man out of the dust of the earth and you find where the first marriage uh, is brought to our attention. See, there's a book of firsts. It's a book of beginnings. The first man, the first woman, the first marriage, the first child, the first birth, the first death, the first uh, you know, mention of our great adversary, the devil, in the form of the serpent uh, in Genesis chapter 3. The fall of man is recorded for us in that third chapter. And we see just how far that fall went when you get to chapter 4. When you have Cain and Abel, you have the first murder recorded in the book of Genesis. When Cain, um, you know, slew his brother Abel. And then in the fifth chapter of Genesis, you've got the generations of Adam. And the thing you notice most about that is the generation of death. Eight different times in that generation, it begins with Adam and ends with Noah. It ends and he died and he died and he died and he died and he died. And he began that chapter, says this, or the generations of Adam, how that God made Adam, and then Adam and them had, you know, uh, Seth at that time. It was in the image of man. 
But God made man to begin with an image of God, right? So what changes from when he made man the image of God to where now man is reproducing in the image of man? The fall, the transgression, sin that entered into the world now makes a difference. We're no longer in the image of God. There's coming a day that we will be ultimately, Romans 8, 28, 29, 30, we know that all things work together for good to them who love the Lord, who are the called according to his purpose. But whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, which might be the firstborn among many brethren. That day's going to come when the entire family of God, the elect of God, will be in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Now, we go back to the book of Genesis. Just take a look at, uh, well, this, then chapter 6. We can go back to that just for a second. We have the introduction of how man now has fallen so far away from God, every imagination of his heart is to do evil continually, that God's going to destroy this earth by a flood. And we find that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, we have the story of Noah and the ark and the flood and God's wrath. And then chapter 10, so generations of Shem, the uh, son of Noah. And that brings us up to the lifetime of of Abram. But in the 11th chapter of Genesis, we find where the people of the land in that day decided they wanted to build a tower right up into heaven. So let us build us a city. Let us build a tower that reaches right up into heaven and let us build us a name. Notice three things they wanted to do. They wanted a city, they wanted a tower, and they wanted a name. And God looked down from heaven and saw all of this and they were of one language and one speech at that time. God said, let us come down and confound their language. And they did. And they could not understand each other. And they were all scattered. And God called the name of that place, what? Babel, which means confusion. And man's been in utter confusion ever since. Man calls light darkness. He calls darkness light. He calls that which is sweet bitter. And that which is bitter is sweet. And we live in that day and age, aren't we? We live in that day and age. They want to get sidetracked here on something like that this morning. But man has just lost all common reasoning about anything and everything. It's just amazing. And it's being, you know, um, brought to our attention and advanced in one thing or another by so-called intellectual people who ought to know when life begins. How can that possibly be debated? You know life begins at conception. You've known that all your life. Don't be fooled, misled, and deceived in thinking that life doesn't start until several days, several weeks, or several months after a child is conceived in its mother's womb. Something cannot grow if there is no life there. It takes life to grow, life to develop. Life begins immediately at conception. The Bible teaches that. Common sense teaches that. Everybody knew that until we get in this present age of confusion, you see. So look at Genesis 1 and 1 to begin with this morning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You're put to a major test right off the bat. Notice there's no definition for God in this verse. There's no explanation for God in this verse because there's no need for one. There's no need for one because Psalms 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So there's no need for that. It's just an established fact. There's a God. And this God is eternal. This God's from everlasting to everlasting. How could you possibly have eternal life if there's not an eternal God? 
How can you possibly have everlasting life if there's no everlasting God? Our text this morning, Psalms 91 and 2, said, Thou art from everlasting to everlasting. Deuteronomy 33, 27 says, The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. The only time the expression eternal God is used there in the Old Testament. So we have an eternal God who gives eternal life, an everlasting God who gives everlasting life. If that's not true, then we have no hope. We have no hope of a better place. We have no hope of a better world. We have no place, uh, no, no, no reason to believe that we'll leave this world one day and be with the Lord in glory. In the beginning, that's time. Time has had a beginning. In the beginning, time. God created the heaven, space, and the earth, matter, mass. You got space, matter, slash mass, time. All that's included here in this very first verse. In the beginning. Now God was there in the beginning. It's God who brings about the beginning, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's simple, isn't it? It's the most simple, of course, accurate, understandable explanation of where you came from. (laughs) How we're here today. Man's existence upon the face of this earth. In the beginning, God created. Now, man can't create. Man can make things. Man can form things. But he can't create. To create, in the strictest sense, is to bring into existence something that did not prior exist prior to that time. A carpenter can build a house, but he can't make the wood. Right? So to create is one thing. To make something is another thing. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He is our creator. In the last verse of 1 Peter chapter 4, we find the apostle Peter exhorts those he's writing to to commit their soul as unto a faithful creator. See, he's not only our creator, he's our faithful creator. So what does that mean? Well, we could perhaps go into several different things about that. But God promised in the last verse of Genesis chapter 8, and as long as the earth remaineth, there shall be seed time and harvest. There shall be night and day. There shall be summer and winter and cold and heat. Now, as a faithful creator, he's going to see to it that's going to be the case. So far, as the way it's been, right? Up to this present day, there's still seed time and harvest. If it wasn't, you wouldn't be here today. I was just telling Karen just a few days ago, it blows my mind how this earth can still produce enough food where the inhabitants of this earth in the billions are able to eat every single day. It, it, I, I'm just, it's just, I can't hardly comprehend that. But God said as long as the earth remained, there, there'd be seed time and harvest. There'd be summer and there'd be winter. There'd be night and there'd be day. He's a faithful creator. He'll see to it that's going to happen. He also destroyed this earth one time by a flood. But he promised it never would be destroyed by a flood again. But it wouldn't be destroyed, but it'd be by fire. So far, that's been the case, right? Oh, we have all kind of floods that happen almost weekly around the world, but nothing like you read in the book of Genesis. This earth will not be destroyed by a flood again. And God put a rainbow in the sky as a reminder He didn't need to be reminded, but every time you see that rainbow, it ought to remind you of this promise that God made, you see. He's our great creator. 
That's why the work of the new birth is spoken of as a creation. Do you ever think about that? Ephesians 2 and 9, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, before which he hath ordained, you know, unto good works, before which he hath ordained that we should walk in them. For we are his workmanship created. When a person is born in the Spirit of God, it's not some magic formula like the theological world presents to you where now all you got to do is, is believe, all you got to do is confess, and when you believe and you confess and you repent, bang, you're born in the Spirit of God. You think that's the way it works? <laughs> that's not the way it works. You are created in Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new what? He's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. We do not believe in evolution. First one, Genesis 1-1 defeats that idea of evolution, right? It states forth creation. It says forth there is a creator God. It does away with dualism. That is, there was nobody there with God to create the, the everything that was created. It was just God and, and God alone. It eliminates evolutionism, of course, as I just said. It defeats atheism because here's God again. In the beginning, God. This book is about God. Oh, it's about man, all right, but God first, man second, right? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So the most beautiful language in all the Bible is associated with the work of God in creation. For example, Psalms 90, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day in the day other speech, and night in the night show its knowledge. There is no place where their voice is not heard. The heavens have a voice, and they make that voice known, and it's heard. When you see the sun, the moon, the stars, the beautiful sky. Right now it's daylight here, it's nighttime somewhere else. When it's nighttime here, it's daylight somewhere else. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. It's the handiwork of God. Psalms 8 starts off saying, How excellent is thy name, O Lord! For thou hast put thy glory above the heavens. When I consider thy heavens, thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon, the stars, things that thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. He's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. And he met out heaven with a span. That's the, from here to here, if you stretched out your hand like that, that's what a span is. Now he's measured the waters in the hollow of your hand. That must be a big hand. God got a big hand. And met out heaven with a span. That is comprehend the dust in a balance. And the mountains and the hills are things that God uses to measure things with. Verse 22 of Isaiah 40. Thou sittest upon the circle of the earth. I think it was Magellan, wasn't it, that sailed around the world to prove that the world wasn't flat? Remember, there's a time when humanity thought the world was flat. Well, 700 years before Christ was born, Isaiah said the earth is a circle. He sat upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants are as grasshoppers. He stretches out the curtain, and he says it stretches out like a tent 
for them to dwell in. This, to me, this is beautiful language when you read about the creation, the work of God's creation. Twice in the book of Jeremiah, we use one, Jeremiah 10, 12. It says, the Lord has formed the earth by his power. He's made the world by his understanding. He has stretched out the heavens by his discretion. All about the work of creation. All through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, you find sprinkled here and there all the way through the scriptures, verses that teach us that God is a creator God. Take a look at John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. That's the second person of the Godhead. Spelled capital W-R-D. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Romans 1.20. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. His eternal power and Godhead is understood by the things that are made. <laughs> when I take a look at the sun and the moon, <laughs> it kind of makes me think he's got power. <laughs> eternal power, right? He, therefore he says, for they are without excuse. God speaks to us in general through his creation. Man is without excuse upon the face of this earth not to believe that there's a creator God. He may not believe in a redeemer. He may not, may not believe that man needs salvation, needs a redeemer, but he cannot deny the fact that we live in an orderly universe. It just didn't come as out about as a result of a big bang theory, you see. Hebrews 11, 2, 3. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. You know, when you start to build a house, they're talking about framing a house, right? Talking about framing it, putting up the walls, one thing or another, drying it in, things like that. By faith, we understand that the world's plural. Now, notice this world's in the, it's plurality. In the, by faith, we understand the worlds were framed by the Word of God, by the spoken Word of God. We'll see that later. By the spoken Word of God. And the things which are seen are not made by the things that appear. That's just simply saying, once again, what creation is. First of all, you have nothing. Next thing, you got something. God brings into existence that which had no existence prior to. Man cannot create. He can form, he can build, he can make things, but he, but he can't create, you see. In Acts chapter 17, Paul goes to a place called Athens, and he goes up on Mars Hill. And here you had the Stoics and Epidurians and the philosophers always discussing something that was new. You can just imagine sitting around listening to them, right? <laughs> All these intellectual people, one thing or another. And then he sees this sign saying, to the unknown God. He says, and he speaks up. Now, Paul's not there by invitation to preach, okay? <laughs> but Paul, Paul couldn't take it anymore, <laughs> He says, I perceive that you're too superstitious. He says, you got a sign over here to the unknown God. He says, now God dwelleth not in tabernacles made with hands, neither is he worshiped with men's hands, seeing he needeth nothing. What does God need? Paul said, he don't need nothing. Seeing he needeth nothing. All right, but seeing he giveth life and breath to all things. Where does life and breath come? It comes from the Creator God, doesn't it? 
And then two, three verses later, he says, seeing he giveth life and breath, he says, in whom we have, uh, in whom we all uh, move and have our being. You know why you're able to move and have a being? Because you have life. Where did you get life? You got it from God. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We believe in a creator God, a God who creates, and God created. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, as the earth was out form and void, and God said, now in this first chapter of Genesis, and you go from Genesis 1 through verse 31, in the first three verses of Genesis chapter 2, you'll find in the first chapter that the word good is mentioned seven times. The word made is used seven times. The word heaven is used seven times. Seven is the number of perfection, right? That's one thing old Baptists ought to know. It's mentioned a lot. Seven is the number of perfection and completion. So you got the word good, the word made, the word heaven, all used seven times. And the name God used 35 times, which is uh, divisible by what? By seven, five, five times, right? In other words, this first chapter of Genesis is all about perfection. It's all about perfection. About a perfect God doing a perfect work. And then we're told each and several, each and every day what God did on those days of creation, starting with day one. And it says, in God said. Ten times it says, in God said. And every time it says, in God said, whatever God said came to pass. Ten times. You got the acts of God of creation, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, and then we come to day six. Up through day five, no mention been made of man yet, right? But God has prepared this earth as a place where man can dwell on it. Everything he's going to stand in need of has been created in the first five days of creation. So we come to day number six. God says something a little different. So far in every day of the creation, he says, and God said, and God said. But this time he says, let us, us, now, in Genesis 1-1, the name for God is Elohim, all right? That's a, a, a word that denotes plurality. So, in other words, in the beginning, God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit created the heaven and the earth. It was the work of the triune Godhead. All right, we find here where he says, let us make man in our own image. There's some communication in the Trinity, isn't it? There's some communication between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit here concerning this creation. Remember again in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1 and 20, for by Him were all things created in heaven and also in earth. Whether it be things visible or invisible, all principalities and powers, all these things were created by Him. And before all these things, it says Christ was before all things, and by him all things consist. The word consist simply means it's kept together. Do you know that's the same sun out there today you see shining that Adam looked at? When you see the moon in the sky, the other day, Karen said, you know, just a day or two ago, we saw the moon here, and now we're seeing the moon over here. Now, how is that? <laughs> I can't explain all that. But I know one day, night's over here, a few nights later, it's over here, and then the next thing you know, it's back over there. It's just a marvel of God, isn't it? 
the marvel of God. So he keeps it all together. He spoke it in existence by the word of his power, and he keeps it in existence by the power of his word. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then you have listed every single day. It always is the same. He creates, in, it says, in the evening and the morning were the first day. In the evening and the morning were the second day. God didn't create any, anything in the evening. He always created in the morning, in the daytime, in the light time. So we come to day number six. In day number six, he says, let us make man in our own image. And God made man in his own image. He said he might have dominion over the fowls of the air, the cattle of the field, and the fish of the sea. Wow. Of all the creation, God has put man in charge of all that exists. Later on, God's going to give Adam the responsibility of naming every single creature of his creation. Now, you're talking about intelligence. Uh, I do not believe there's ever been anybody as intelligent as Adam. I believe he's the most intelligent man who ever lived upon the face of this earth. Now, I know Solomon had the greatest wisdom, but I'm talking about intelligence. All the things that Adam was able to do. Let us make man in our own image. Now, I don't know what all that embraces this morning, but I do know this. God's a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I know man's a trichotomy. He's a body, soul, and spirit. I know that God is sinless. Man for a while was sinless. He was innocent. Man was made in the image of God until the transgression. It's also interesting to me to read over here in Philippians chapter 2 these words. Then his mind, me and you, was also in Christ Jesus, being the former God, thought not robbing equal with God, but made himself for no reputation. He says he was found in the form of a servant, and he was made what? In the likeness of men. Now, God made man in the likeness of God, but Jesus Christ had been made in the likeness of men. Right, the opposite. Well, while he was made in the likeness of men, he was not in the likeness of men from the standpoint of a sinful nature because he did not have one. But he was in the likeness of men in terms of his humanity. He looked just like anybody else. He walked around this earth. Two arms, two hands, two feet, two legs, etc., etc., a face, all these things, and he was made in the likeness of men. He dwelt among men, but he was sinless in his, in his life, in his great work, of course. So let us make man in our own image, and that's what he did. Now we come to the end of the chapter, and it said, when God finished the creation six days, he looked and saw it was very good. Now you notice after the end of every day of creation, he says he looked and he saw it was good. It was good. He created that day, he finished his work, that day, it was good. But now he looks upon all his creation, he says it's very good. <laughs> it's very good. Chapter 2 opens up, and the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts therein. Now, that word finished is an interesting word, especially when you see how it's associated with God. Let me just ask you the question. You read Genesis chapter 1, you see anything incomplete? You see anything lacking? You see anything in the work of creation those six days that God could have done different, God could have done more, God could have done less? Maybe he should have took another day. You see any of that? No, you don't see any of that because it was finished. It was finished according to the wisdom of God, the discretion of God, and the power of God. It was finished. In the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, you find all this in John's Gospel, John 4, 34. 
the Lord Jesus Christ said, I must do the works of him that sent me and finish the work. I must work while it's daytime, nighttime comes, no man can work. I've come to finish the work thou gavest me to do. He came to finish it. I think he was qualified, don't you? I think he was qualified. Come to John 17, the priest, high priest prepared the Lord Jesus Christ. He prays to the Father and says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, he might also glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given unto him. I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. Now, he hadn't gone to Calvary yet, but you see, the Lord had work to do on this earth besides redeeming his children. He had the work of preaching and teaching his gospel. He had the work of setting up his gospel church and his kingdom, which he did. He had the work of doing all the miracles. He had the work of fulfilling every Old Testament prophecy there was concerning him in the Old Testament. He says in John 17, 4, I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. Then find Jesus Christ on the cross. There are seven sayings of the Savior on the cross. Take a look at John 19 and 30. The Lord Jesus Christ hanging upon that cross makes this statement, it is finished. That's what old Baptists believe. That's what primitive Baptists slash old Baptists believe. They believe the work of Jesus Christ was saving his people from their sins, and it was finished. Believe the Lord Jesus Christ came to redeem his people from their sins, and he redeemed them. Believe the Lord Jesus Christ came to justify his people in the sight of God, he justified them. Believe the Lord Jesus Christ came to reconcile his people back to God the Father, and he reconciled them. Believe the Lord Jesus Christ came to pay the redeeming price, and he paid it. Believe the Lord Jesus Christ came to be propitiation for the sins of his people, and he became that. We believe when he says, it is finished, it is finished. No uncrossed T's, no undotted I's, it is finished. I don't know how you get more simple than that. That's what I've been trying to preach for over 50 years. Lord willing, I'm going to preach for the next 30 years that way. All right, now. He was finished. The work was finished. Four times in the first three verses of chapter 2, we're told that God finished the work of creation. And then day number 7 is, comes on the scene. Day number 7 is referred to as the Sabbath. It means a rest. God worked six days, and he rested on day number 7. And we like to preach that God wasn't tired. He didn't rest because he was tired. That's why I try to rest once in a while. Uh, I get tired every now and then. Do you? I get tired, and so I need to try to rest a little bit. God designed it that way. While we sleep several hours a night to try to restore the strength and energy of our body, we can rest in this most unusual, unique manner and way. So God didn't rest because he was tired, did he? But I do read over here another place in the book of Exodus where it said God rested from his work and was refreshed. But the word refreshed means he just took a nice deep breath. Have you ever done something, <laughs> you know, and you've been working on it for a pretty long time, and you finally finish it, and when you put nail the last nail in, so to speak, literally or figuratively, you just stand back and you... <sighs> Why? Because it's finished. <laughs> you may not be tired, but it's finished. Plus the fact God gave us that for an example. Man's to work six days. And the seventh day, he's not. Now, you know, we've, man for many centuries realized that the day had seven days and six of them he was supposed to work. Then we got to a five-day work week, right? Now they're talking about a four-day work week. 
First thing you know, we'll be no work at all. Have you been into Lowe's lately? Have you been to, to Home Depot lately and tried to find somebody to help you lately? Used to, there'd be an employee on every aisle, right? And that employee had expertise in that aisle. Now when I go in there, I got to chase somebody down. I got to go up and down every aisle. I get my exercise and I go to those places. I tell you now, I have to go up and down every single aisle trying to find somebody that works there only to find out that he'll have to call somebody. And that person he calls gets over there and I find out, well, this is not my department. Nobody wants to work. Well, I'm going to say nobody. There's somebody there working. Some people want to work, but a lot of people want to work. They'd rather walk to the mailbox and get a check out of there and stay at home. Right? Man's supposed to work six days, not four, not five, but six. But the seventh day, he's to cease from his work that he might refresh, literally, physically, refresh himself. But the seventh day, this is the first time the word blessed is used in the Bible. And it's not about a person, it's about a day. God blessed this day, call it the Sabbath day, which means a day of rest. You work six you take the day off. Now, don't take it off like a few people have, have informed me. Believe it or not, sometimes I'm amazed. But believe it or not, I've had people to tell me, well, I, I didn't make it to church Sunday. I was just so tired. I just, Sunday's the only day I get off. Sunday's the only day I can rest. You don't have to be here at 1030. You have to be at work maybe at 7, 738. You don't have to be in the house of God till 10.30. How much rest do you need? If you got to have that day to rest that way, you just work too hard the other six days, which I doubt seriously. The seventh day is a special day. God sanctified it and blessed it. It's a sanctifying day. It's a blessed day. God did that. I, don't, I can't see without my reading glasses on, so I'm sorry. <laughs> So we move along here, right? And all these things are so important. I, I mean, I'm going to have to touch the, the, the surface here this morning. But in chapter 2, we have the details of God creating man. And he creates man from the dust of the earth. Adam was not born in this world like you and like I. He was created from the dust of the earth. And then he caused a deep sleep to come upon Adam and took a rib out of his side and formed a woman named Eve the mother of all living, and brought her to the man. Now we have the first marriage, and here's the example of marriage. Here's the formula for marriage. Here is the um, blueprint for marriage. And anything that does not fit this blueprint is not marriage in the sight of God. Man and woman. Not man and man, not woman and woman. Man and woman. God's in the arrangement. God brings a woman to the man. Take from a rib right out of his side, right next to his heart, showing this intimate relationship between a man and a woman. And Adam responded like this, this call shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife. Cleave means you stick with her through thick and thin, good and bad, all the way to the end. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and these twain shall become one flesh. The only thing, this is the only relationship known to man where this is said about. Not even between parents and children, between a man and a woman, as husband and wife. 
we come to chapter 3, we have our enemy. We have our enemy come on the scene. He comes as a serpent. The serpent comes to Eve. Now, God took man. Let me go back to chapter 2. God planned a garden there in Eden, and he took man and put him in the garden to address it and to keep it. That's his responsibility. And he tells man, you can eat of every tree in the garden of Eden except one tree is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The command is clear. The command is plain. Now the serpent comes on the scene and he works through the woman, Eve. And he says, hath God said? He always puts things in question for him. Has God said? And he said, well, here's what God said. And I want you to notice three things Eve did that people have been doing to the word of God ever since. See, God said we could eat every tree in the garden of Eden except the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And the day thou eat thereof, it says, it, 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 maybe back up. They made eat every tree in the, in the garden of Eden except the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're not to eat of that tree lest we die. Eat of that tree or touch it. The Lord never said anything about touching it. She added that. Lest you die is not the same thing as thou shalt surely die. She altered that. And then she did not say, thou shalt surely die. So she omitted that. And people have been adding to, altering, and omitting things from God's word ever since the very beginning. So she eats of the fruit because she saw three things about it. It was pleasant to the eyes. It was good for food. And it was to make one wise. If you turn over here to 1 John chapter 2, you'll find where the Apostle John says, live not the world nor the things of the world, for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All three of these things are right over there in the Garden of Eden with Eve. That's why we're not to love the world. So she gives to Adam. Adam eats. Adam transgresses. And what happens? Romans 5, 12 tells us plainly what took place. Wherefore, but one man, Adam, sinned in the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. We have universal depravity. There's never been anybody in this world that was not born without a sinful nature with the exception of the Lord and Jesus Christ. At the moment of conception, there's life. Also, there's human nature, and that human nature is a sinful human nature. Now, they're naked, and chapter 2 ends saying they were naked. There's nothing wrong with that at the time. But now they see their nakedness, and they're ashamed because sin has entered into the picture. God comes on the scene, comes walking in the garden, what is, I want you to notice what Adam and Eve did not do as well as what they did do. You don't find Adam and Eve coming before the Lord and confessing their transgression, confessing their sin, and repenting and asking for forgiveness. You don't see that. What do you do see? You see them hiding. You see them hiding. And the Lord says unto Adam, Why art thou? Well, the Lord knew where he's at, of course. Why art thou? He said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid, so I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, have you ate of the tree I told you not to eat of, Adam? It sounds kind of like my daddy's message sometime to me. <laughs> I think daddy got a, must have studied this real good because he talked just like that every once in a while to me. How about your dad? <laughs> Did you eat of that tree? Did you eat that cookie I told you not to eat? That's what he asked Adam. Adam says, well, Lord, says, see that woman you gave me. Says, I, I ate it because, because of her. Because of her. And so the Lord then speaks to the woman. 
You know what she says? Well, she said, well, you know, the serpent came along and beguiled me. So he comes to the serpent. He says, cursed art thou. He curses that serpent. And he says, thou shalt go upon thy belly and eat dust all thy life, all thy existence. And then here's a verse, uh, that verse 15. That's one of the most important verses in the book of Genesis and the book of the Bible. He says in that serpent, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heels. Here's the first promise of a Messiah. Here's the first promise. Here's the first uh, prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Word of God. And the Lord speaks it unto that serpent right there. He said, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between her, your seed and her seed. Now, it's the woman's seed, not the man's seed. What we have in the picture is, is the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you, when you, a natural birth includes the man's seed, not the woman's seed. But in this case, it's the woman's seed. Between thy seed and her seed, it, the woman's seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall bruise thy head, and the seed of the serpent shall bruise thy heels. Now, when you study the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, you find that coming to pass. The seed of the serpent bruised the heels of the Lord Jesus Christ from the standpoint of all that Satan did in opposition to him. But on the cross of Calvary, nails are driven through the feet of Christ on that cross, and obviously they were bruised. But the good news is that the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, bruised something more vulnerable than the heels. He bruised the head of Satan and defeated him. Oh, what a wonderful picture we have here. Now, what did Adam and Eve do when they realized that they had sinned? What did they do? Now, you see, the nature of man just played out before us right here. It's, it pays you to study this. It's just played out right before us. First of all, they hid from God, right? Didn't want to come, didn't confess, didn't repent, didn't turn, whatever. They hid from God. And then they took fig leaves and sewed them together. Well, that, that, what a sight that must have been. Took fig leaves and sewed them together to cover their nakedness. You know what happens to a leaf when you pluck it off a tree? It starts fading and shriveling, doesn't it? <laughs> to cover their necks. Fig leaves. You know what? There's one thing Jesus Christ cursed during his earthly ministry. You know what it was? Just one thing. He cursed a fig tree. Cursed a fig tree. So what's man going to do? He, can, he failed miserably in his works. And this is what this picture of is a work system. He has failed miserably in this work system. He has transgressed God's law. He's tried to remedy it by his own hands, by his own works. He took fig leaves of all things and sewed them together to cover himself, to cover his nakedness, but it doesn't work. I'm here to tell you today, the work system doesn't work. <laughs> when it comes to your salvation, the work system doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Ephesians 2 8, for by grace you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's to get to God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 2 Timothy 1 9, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and his grace that he gave us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of works of the world. The work system doesn't work. Titus 3 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy, as Satan's been washing regeneration, renewing of the Holy Ghost, I'm telling you, the work system doesn't work. What does work? Grace works. What did God do? God clothed them 
with the skins of animals. What did that require? It required death. It required the shedding of blood. It required substitution. When the Lord Jesus Christ hung upon the cross, I'm telling you, he shed his blood, he laid down his life, and he died a vicarious death, a substitutionary death in the room instead of those that the Father gave him before time ever began. What did Adam and Eve do to be clothed with those skins? Anything? Name me one thing, just one. You name me one set thing, and I might say the work system works, but the work system doesn't work. They didn't do one thing. They were totally passive in this transaction. God clothed them. Just like God's redeemed you. God has delivered you. God has saved you. <laughs> it's God and God alone, right? Who helped God clothe Adam and Eve? Nobody. No preacher around to help him out. Guess he had to do it all by himself. Didn't Isaiah tell us that twice in his writings? For God looked from heaven and saw there was none to help. None. You know why there was none to help? Because nobody knew how to help. Nobody was qualified to help. Nobody had the power to help, the strength to help. Nobody. So God did it on his own. Aren't you, aren't you glad in a God that's able? Aren't you glad in a God that's able to save his people from their sins when everything else under the sun, my friends, fails? Man in his misery, man in his bankrupt condition, what could he possibly do to redeem himself? What could he possibly do to pay the sin debt? What could he possibly do to change his position in the sight of God? Nothing, nothing, nothing. But God can. And God does. And God will. God clothed them with animal skin. Some, something had to die. Blood had to be shed. And God took the skins of those animals and he clothed Adam and Eve adequately, completely, sufficiently. I'm glad to tell you today that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is adequate. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was required and the blood was shed. The sin debt was removed and the Lord's people now are clothed with white linen or linen clean and white as expressed in the book of Revelation. Just kind of hit the high spots this morning on this. But I want you to understand how important this book is. The book, of, the book of Genesis. And by the way, there are so many similarities between Genesis and Revelation, the last book of the Bible that we might speak on at a later time. It just will amaze you how many things that we study about in Genesis we study about over here in the book of Revelation.